Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. My guest for this week's episode is, you guessed it, my co-host, Michelle Dennity. Michelle has recently joined the Smarter Markets hosting team, and she'll be hosting some of her own episodes in coming weeks. But first, we wanted to give you a full-length interview with Michelle so that you can understand her background and what she brings to the table. Michelle, your focus is digital privacy. Forgive my sarcasm, but I guess that means you're a historian and you like writing about things that don't exist anymore in society. Oh, Eric, Eric, Eric. You are coming from the privacy nihilist point of view. We're going to have to unpack that, my friend. Okay. I admit that I am uh, showing my age and skepticism, but I am first, so we, I don't uh, set the wrong message to our audience. I am a passionate believer in privacy, in our right to privacy, in our right to not have governments interfere in our privacy, but also in our right not to have our private information and data exploited by social media companies and other private interests who oftentimes disguise what they're doing and and claim to be giving us something for free when in reality, you know, we are the product. It's our personal information which is being exploited often in ways that are not obvious and to our detriment. So I'm a huge believer in the concept, but frankly, I'm a skeptic, and I'll tell you the reason that I'm a skeptic, Michelle. When George Orwell first published the book 1984, which was in 1948, uh, transposing those two numbers, it was ridiculed at the time because what everybody said is, look, it's completely fantasy nonsense because in the social attitude that existed in that time, it was thought that never in a million years would people allow a government to abuse their rights in the ways that were depicted in that book. The book was not intended to be a how-to manual for governments, but frankly, (laughs) it feels to me like it's become that. And what's changed, Michelle, is the social attitude. For whatever reason, we've gone from an environment where people were so skeptical of government and so proud of their right to privacy and so forth that they thought it unthinkable that a population would ever tolerate that kind of government interference in their lives. We've somehow gotten to a point where any government has to do is say, look, in order to protect you from terrorism, we've got to basically, you know, spy on you and monitor everything you do and surveil every aspect of your life. And we have warrantless searches that we do. We collect all of your information. And, you know, when Edward Snowden basically gave up his own freedom for the rest of his life in order to warn us about things that were going on that he felt were illegal, about half of the population labeled him as an absolute, you know, bad guy, a a, uh, a traitor who betrayed his country by 
telling the people of the country that, that their own government was engaged in breaking its own laws pertaining to their privacy. And most people think that we should be supporting the government's need to abuse our privacy for the sake of our own good. I don't agree with that. But the thing is, Michelle, there's more people who disagree with me than agree with me. And that's why I think, unfortunately, we live in a world where it's democracy and people want to have the government oversee things and they don't see it as an intrusion on privacy that we're surveilled and we have FISA courts and secret warrants that nobody knows about and all these things going on. These are not things that are being done behind the scenes. They're done out in the open. The, the fact that the, the system works this way is well known and most people don't object to it. So I don't understand you guys who think that privacy is a real thing anymore. It's something that, as far as I can see, most people no longer see the need to stand up for and say, we deserve this. Oh, so much to unpack. So much to unpack. I'm really excited to dig in because I think in in many data points, I absolutely agree with you. It's undeniable. So let's start from the beginning since you brought up uh, 1948 when 1984 was written. And exactly as you say, it was not supposed to be a guidance manual for every corrupt and immorally morally bankrupt Joe on the planet. It was really a, this is terrifying, see what can happen. And remember the time you know, in context, which is incredibly important for any privacy practitioner, in 1948, what had just occurred to our world? We were parading people through death camps because people willingly looked the other direction during the mass slaughter of our fellow human being. And a lot of the data privacy laws that have been written and the strength of those laws, you cannot do privacy law or policy in Europe without hearing about the Holocaust, which did occur. So if you don't believe that, you're probably on the wrong podcast. (laughs) So what happened in 1948? Now, when we pick this apart from a systems perspective, because I'm a soft systems kind of gal, the first thing that happened was massive information collection compulsory government collection of information. The next thing that happened is that the data and the disinformation about our fellow human beings was spread into a fear society post-World War I. There were identifiable bad guys. They were gypsies. They were Jews. They were others. And so we knew where those people lived. It was compulsory to have your religion attested to your union memberships. So these are all the sensitive data factors in the underlying European laws, right? It's not finance like it is here in the United States that's most sensitive. It's union membership, it's gender identification, it's your religion, and it's your body, your corporal health. So that A government could not come in again and say, you are not healthy enough, you are not worthy enough, you are not mentally unsound enough that you no longer have the right to live. So this is where you can see where we have this emergence of 1984 as art and fiction coming first as a warning. And the reaction to that warning, I think, was very wholesome, which was you started to see the rise of government-based restrictions on access to data and surveillance. And you started to see the Fourth Amendment, which in the U.S. has been around, obviously, for a very long time, starting to be 
looked at as are there rights and limitations when you have been accused of a crime, for example? And so what are the limitations of a reasonable search and seizure? And then, of course, we see starting in the 1940s when the first cell phone was invented and actually functional in the 1940s, the ability to wirelessly surveil one another. And so on parallel tracks, we saw the rise of government surveillance and surveillance capitalism, which is sort of, I'll I'll rush us forward because it's not a history podcast, but the right to privacy coming up to present day. And you look at all of these companies who are arguably even more powerful in the manipulation of our day-to-day lives with information they know about us. So all that said, it sounds like I'm on the bandwagon of why even try? Why privacy? Why don't we think it's totally gone? And I'll tell you that going into the definition of privacy, I think is useful and helpful. When there is an unseemingly solvable problem, I'll go with unseemingly solvable instead of seemingly unsolvable just for kicks. Because <laughs> it is as confusing as that. Um, I Your like first fallibility is exposed to the Smarter Markets audience. We know you're not completely perfect now. <laughs> oh, believe me, I think already some of our listeners are saying, this woman is crazy. There is no right to privacy. And I'll tell you. Well, but, but uh, here's what I want to really get your an understanding of your view on. I'm in total agreement with you that there should be an expectation of privacy, that it's super important to humanity and that it's a horrific tragedy to lose it. We're, we're totally in agreement there. I think you're saying that it's not as bad of a situation as I think it is and all hope is not really lost. Help me understand why you think hope is not lost because what I see is a guy like Ed Snowden comes out and says, look, the federal government is violating federal law more than anybody else on the planet and the reaction of most people is this Snowden guy ought to be executed. I don't agree with that, but that's what people think. Yeah, there's a couple of things. And so I think in Snowden is a, is a particular thing. So let's put a pin in, in Ed for a minute. Let's first start with, should there be hope? And I think if something is fundamentally valuable and worthy, like being able to safely walk the streets without being murdered, I think we can agree that's important. And yet as 3,000 years of human, we're still seeing murders occurring. But we have social structures, we have rules, we have consequences that we try to do and so on. And you can do that for petty theft or crime or whatever it is. In the Code of Hammurabi, there is a provision for privacy. It says, if a man looks in through the window at another man's woman in a state of undress, the married man can come and gouge the eyes out of his neighbor. A bit harsh. Um, Not a lot of due process there. However... The sanctity, even though the technology was open, unglazed window, allowing for both ventilation, which was the positive aspect of windows, but also for spying for people who were violating the norms of the community. So if a nascent society in ancient culture can sort of thread the needle of what is the balance between technological innovation and the capability of surveillance and spying and and corruption versus having rules that are commensurate with that technology. If they can do it then, I believe we can do it now. 
part of the reason I am, have this belief is when you actually look at the problem, particularly about digital privacy. So there's a whole bunch of sort of community norms and, and do we have a consistent global norm now that everybody is sort of virtually intermingling between collective societies and individualistic societies. That's a different, longer conversation. But let's look at our digital privacy for a moment. If you define digital privacy and the capability of having it at all as secrecy, you will find that there are slackers and hackers, both negligent breaches and active criminals that will violate our technological capabilities to protect ourselves. I do not believe, and a lot of research backs me up on this now, that the younger generations growing up in a digital environment simply don't care. Many of them feel like there's no empowerment. Many no more of them don't understand the consequences necessarily of spinning a very loud and noisy teenage tale online forever to be recorded. But if you break it down, this comes down to a definition that we came up with in a, a, a little book I wrote with my dad, uh, Tom Finneran, and my business partner, Jonathan Fox. It's called The Privacy Engineer's Manifesto. And it's purposely called the manifesto because I believe what is required here to recapture privacy is indeed a revolution. So our definition functionally is drawn from soft systems engineering, which is that privacy can be broken down into steps as the authorized processing and deletion and storage and ignoring our processing of personal and personally identifiable information according to, in this order, moral, ethical, legal, and sustainable principles. And so the entire methodology around soft systems and the wicked problem of privacy, and I don't mean like wicked cool Boston, I mean like wicked problem solving, high complexity, high stakeholder divergency, it has to be governed. So if you look at privacy as a wicked problem, and you look at the steps of knowing who's who in the zoo, context, when is it authorized? Authorization is not ongoing and forever. What is processing? Who is processing? Where are they processing? And then how do we, how do we sort of titrate the collective morality ethics. And I, and I break them out with all apologies to real philosophers. Morality, I mean, is things like killing people is bad, typically, although we do kill people in war, although we do in certain countries kill people as punishment. Death is usually bad. <laughs> ethics, I'm putting more into more of a commercial context. If you are Coca Cola, I don't ever imagine that I'll open up a can and suddenly taste Vuvuco champagne. Is that a quality judgment or just an ethic of this is what my expectation is in this context? So when you look at privacy as an ongoing system solution governance issue, my hearing that there is no privacy is, is akin to someone saying, you have no right to life because it's possible for me to kill you. You have no right to have money safe in the bank because bank robbers like to go there and take it out. No, you have to have risk management. You have to govern the right to privacy. You have to curate it. And guess what? For the same reason governments love to violate it and these big conglomerates love to like steal and sell your capital assets as digital currency, guess what? It's very valuable. And what happens with valuable things? People innovate solutions. And so we're just at the dawn of this new 
renaissance of individual controls and capabilities and tools that will allow human beings to recapture this, this ethic of privacy that we've had since we've had, you know, animal skins to cover our bodies. Well, I'm all for the ideas that you suggest, and I hope your revolution is successful. But I think the very fact that you're describing it as a revolution unto itself admits that it's a big change from where we are right now. And what I'm not seeing, Michelle, and and I'd really love for you to explain what I'm missing here, is I'm not seeing the public will, because Snowden showed us that the U.S. government was, in fact, violating its own laws. Most people got angry at Snowden, not the government, about that. We know for a fact that Facebook exploits user data and sells it in ways that are detrimental to the people whose data they have. Everybody has the ability to delete Facebook. Nobody does. They all think that, it. hey, you know what? They give me something that's cool and I enjoy it. And yeah, I know because I I read the news. I know that they are exploiting my personal data, selling information about me and my buying habits to commercial concerns that are going to be marketing to me in stealthy ways that I don't even know that I'm being manipulated. But you know what? Even though I'm fully aware of all that, because it's not a secret anymore, I still like staying in touch with my friends on Facebook, so I'll keep doing it. That's not the 1948 public mentality of, you know, hell no, we'll never tolerate this again. That is a a complacency and an acceptance where most people say, look, the government needs to do all this surveillance. And yeah, maybe they're technically violating some rights along the way, but they're they're doing it for a, a good cause. It's to fight terrorism. Um, frankly, I'm skeptical even about whether that's the real motivation, but most people believe that that's what it's all about and they're okay with it and they're okay with Facebook, you know, selling their personal data. I agree with you that a revolution is needed. We're in a hundred percent agreement on that. Why should one be expected? So let's, let's first start with Ed cause I've ignored him three times now. So let's go back to our friend, Eddie. <laughs> so I am not of the he's a hero. I'm not really of he's a traitor either. The thing that sort of fascinates me of the whole Snowden meltdown, I'll call it, I will not call it a revelation because in the security ghetto, and it turns out it was a, it was a ghetto screaming into its own quiet void for the last 20 years at conferences like Black Hat and RSA and other like major security technical conferences. You couldn't walk the halls and not hear about these violations. The EFF sued for secret data centers that were unlawfully, allegedly, I don't know what the status of those appeals are that were violating and surveilling American citizens in particular and the crossover of were we looking at the appropriate jurisdiction even for the supposed anti-terrorist policing forces, both domestically and abroad in the US, question mark. The other part that is the absolutely open secret is from the moment there was signal, there was nation state spying, some on their own citizens, some on other citizens. So I think I think what he did was come into a moment of time and fashion 
It was fashionable to be upset about something that was absolutely there for the world to see. And not just in these security ghettos. I mean, there were reports about the secret data centers, you know, right after the towers fell. If you looked at the 9-11 report after 9-11 happened, all of it was there to see. And the Patriot Act was almost unanimously passed. Now, anyone who's looked into anybody's government, and particularly the U.S. in the last 20 years, you got to know that if anything is unanimous, it's either so great that why are we bothering with a piece of legislation, or it's so dire and poor and done so quickly that we feel panicked. And that's exactly what happened. And we still have the Patriot Act with us today. So I think that's where I put Ed Snowden is like, I don't know why he was the tipping point of fashion where suddenly he's sort of like, to me, he's like the bell bottoms of security. Like they, they became cool again for some reason, but they really never weren't gone. So I, 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 I find him really interesting just because he did sort of wake people up to caring again. And I think that's, that's all good things. So I think, I think there's a lot to unpack with that. Why is this a revolution? And, and I call it a revolution mostly because. But there's no public, there's no public sentiment to repeal the, the Patriot Act. Uh, why would you expect a revolution when nobody even seems to take objection to the Patriot Act, which to my thinking is a frontal assault on the Constitution? Yeah, well, and, and I think it, it sort of defined nobody. I think there's always 40 to 50 bills that are attacking various parts of that and other surveillance things. You know, the real question is why don't we have a federal law here in the United States that protects our, our data rights, given that digital currency is on the rise? You cannot have digital currency without owners of that currency. And those are human beings. And if the authorized processing of data that is either personal or personally identifiable somewhere along the line, it, it pushes or pulls from a human being, whether we know their name or not, then we can't have a currency without that authorized processing. And so if we want to have all of this digital capability, being able to work from home for many knowledge workers during a pandemic is a digital revolution. So I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity. I think there's not a lot of patience for public stories that take time to digest. Like people are obsessed. There's some like minor royal couple without any sort of real, I don't know. I don't want to say value. Of course, they're human beings. They're valuable. But what do they do? And yet, like Oprah Winfrey sat down and had a conversation. And this last week, all ever, anyone wants to talk about is like a former prince and princess and their baby. I, I mean, they're adorable. I like the fashion. Don't get me wrong. But I'd much rather see a two-hour interview about like, how do you actually feel about curating your digital rights? What, what lengths would you do to actually protect yourself so that you could have a social media and only talk to people who actually were your friends and only have maybe ephemeral sharing. So I want to show my daughter winning a trophy and I want to put it on a social media so that my very large Irish Catholic family could see a picture of her doing great things. But I don't want it floating around on the internet for people to, to exploit or to, to be gross with. So I think that those things the, the hypothesis of do we want to share has been proved by Facebook. 
it will not last because they haven't curated their privacy. It will not last. It seems like it's forever. It seems like a monolith. But every day I see like six or seven new social media propositions coming up through Silicon Valley. It will not last unless they change. You think Facebook faces extinction if they don't reform their privacy abuses, you're saying? I do. I hope you're right. It's, it's long overdue. Would you, would you agree that it's gone on for far too long? It's gone on for far too long. I mean, I, I was, you know, <laughs> shamedly because I, I like to keep it professional-ish, um, but, you know, for the longest time, I, I sort of had an online campaign of, call me, Mark, when will there be a privacy professional sitting on public boards? Because as long as we measure our company's success through literally exploitation, and and dollars and cents aren't necessarily morally good or bad, but we, the only thing we're measuring after the 33 and the 34 acts through the SEC is financial prosperity. We're not looking at ethics. I love the rise of the ESG, at least thoughtfulness on boards. But while you have most boards are composed of primarily salespeople, finance people, and a couple of lawyers are allowed to wander in every now and again if they've been good boys and girls over the years and, and supported the finance. Those are the people creating strategic direction. I like that there's at least a movement to have ESG, governance, society, environment, at least talked about at the board, but they're not talked about by experts. So I think that there is, there's a whole movement coming of security people. We're starting to see more and more security people on boards. We're starting to see at least whispers of privacy capabilities and reportings. So all of this stuff is early days. And I think that's why I still, you know, I, I called it a manifesto, you know, 15 years ago when we started writing the book, I still think that there's a lot of revolutionary work to do. But I also see, you know, three unicorns just during the pandemic that were privacy businesses. And we're seeing something like a TAM. The last I saw an IDC report was something like $3 billion going into early stage data manipulation companies, which they call data privacy companies. Right now, they're data ma manipulation until I see them pointed well. That's sort of the, uh, the thorium debate we had in our last podcast together. Well, you know, this whole question of the importance of having a chief privacy officer on a board is something that really fascinates me, Michelle. And again, I'll, I'll just make apologies for my, uh, my skepticism and admittedly my cynicism. But frankly, although you're clearly one of the good guys or good gals, as the case may be, I think this whole chief privacy officer thing smells to me like constitutional lawyer in air quotes. Sounds like somebody who's like for the Constitution. In reality, most constitutional lawyers job is helping governments and corporations work around the intention of the Constitution while still complying with the letter of the law. And frankly, what I see in terms of the few chief privacy officers that exist in Silicon Valley is I think they're virtue signaling figureheads who exist to create the illusion that these companies care about privacy, when in fact, in reality, a lot of what those people's job really is, is to help them figure out how to work around the, the ethical obligations that they ought to have and continue getting away with the abuses that they're guilty of. Would you go so far as to say that 
all of your chief privacy officer uh, brothers and sisters are, are all good guys and nobody's ever a bad guy? That's like saying, do I always stick to my diet and I never have a cookie? Of course, I'm not going <laughs> to say absolutely all of them. And I think actually as, as the profession becomes a profession, you are going to see a lot of, um, I mean, you'll see some bad actors who are straight up there to hide the bodies for sure. I mean, look at Alan Dershowitz, like who is that guy anyway? What is he for? But I think my experience, and and of course, like deeply biased, I was probably one of the first, I definitely was one of the first 10 and probably one of the first five chief privacy officers. And the reason we called ourselves chief privacy officers in the US was none of us had an actual damn title. Like we were not even directors, most of us. We were kids. (laughs) And yet, and most of us were women because the dudes didn't want the work. It didn't feel glamorous in 99, 2000. And that's not true universally. There are people like Joe Aladeff and Ray Everett Church and, and others who definitely were there, uh, you know, Stan Crossley. So there were, there were definitely men in the room in the early days. And I will tell you that it was, and, and sometimes is, a thankless yeoman's task of believers. So I think those, the, the, the early days, I can 100% tell you that those people wanted to do something to make sure that data was, you know, full of integrity, both for profit as well as for people. And so there's a lot of scars on a lot of people's backs where they absolutely stood in the wind of their, their very senior people. So my first boss, actually, and we should probably get him as a guest, Scott, if you're out there, I want you to come on this podcast on Smarter Markets because he has all sorts of ideas about digital currency and tax law and everything. But Scott McNeely, who was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems, had famously just said, you have zero privacy, topped it off with a hearty get over it at a press conference. And it was about Jira, uh, which is not the, the the code repository Kanban that it is today. But Jira at that time was a Java-enabled piece of code that allowed your laptop to wirelessly print. And so the reporter was like, what about the right to privacy, Scott McNeely? And Scott said, you have zero privacy anyway, get over it. And what he was saying was similar to like how we started this conversation is, isn't it true that anyone who understands how to hack a computer can violate it? Isn't it true that it's very hard to have secrecy? And I, and I wholeheartedly, and it's a shame that we don't have more sequestration and secrecy and truly aloneness where we can sort of do our own groove thing. However, that's where I reacted as a young patent litigator to that statement. And I said, isn't this interesting? If you look at what is the current art, what is the, the art, the prior art that's come before this? And then what is the theme of where we are now in terms of storage, in terms of cloud computing, in terms of digital currencies starting to arise, IoT capabilities? You can surveil with all of that stuff, but you also can manage and have a data supply chain with that stuff. And it's incredibly valuable to do so. So that's where Scott, to his internal credit, literally wrote in an email to me, here's some rope, go hang yourself, kid. You're our first chief privacy officer. (laughs) So that was at the very beginning. Now, you know, we're 25 years on here. 
are all privacy officers, you know, virtuous or are they all virtue signaling? And I'll say there's probably a proportion of each of those things. And, you know, it's sort of the nature of this financially driven beast. There are lots of folks being paid good money to protect the financial beast. And so what they do is they try to prevent what they call risk. And instead of systemically saying, we wouldn't have any risk if we actually were curating data about each of these people, they can more efficiently say, what if we encrypted big chunks of things to get out of our obligations to curate human data? So the state of play today in privacy, I, I am terribly afraid for my former colleagues. I'm currently the CEO of a startup company and I do consulting, but my colleagues who are the chief privacy officer, the data risk officer, the data quality officer, the chief legal officer for privacy, and all of the ones doing really good work whose companies refused to even name them as chief privacy officer because they're so terrified that that will signal a flag that they should be audited or consumed with risk. I fear for this community because it is so new and there are so few tools to do your job well and thoroughly. And the IT has become so complex that it's very difficult for someone to both be what's expected of you as a privacy person is not just a competent lawyer in your niche or even in your nation, but you have to somehow absorb 175 separate countries, constantly changing data privacy rules and regulations balanced against the sometimes absolutely diametrically opposed security and governmental requirements. And so I think it's caused a lot of fear. It's caused a lot of reticence. And in so doing, the new privacy officers may not be as incented as we were when we were really largely unobserved trying to get privacy to the C-level table, trying to get that conversation to the board. Now it's at the board level. And I think, you know, in all fairness to these people, it's, it's a tougher tap dance on a much higher tightrope to dance. So are they all bad? No. Are there people who are taking a paycheck, stuffing it into their back pocket, looking away from, you know, the festering mess and they're still, you know, putting sawdust and bleach in the sausage? Yes. Absolutely yes. I want to come back to something you've mentioned a couple of times, which I think is a really important topic, and that is the advent of digital currency, starting with cryptocurrency, but I think it's going to move to sovereign digital currency. Let's talk more about this, Michelle, because this is something that, that fascinates me. I seem to be the only one who doesn't see the invention of cryptocurrency as an advance for privacy interests. I see it as an utter travesty, a tragedy of privacy interests. And the reason I say that is, first, to their credit, there was both a breakthrough in computer science with the invention of the secure, fully decentralized, ownerless database 
through what's now called distributed ledger technology. That is a, a true breakthrough and it's just amazing stuff. And the financial breakthrough that it enables is the invention of secure digital bearer instruments, which is the basis of how Bitcoin solved the double spending problem. It is not just an interesting and novel invention. It's a freaking breakthrough in finance and it's a breakthrough in computer science, and it's just amazingly cool stuff. No doubt about it. What fascinates me is I don't feel that most of the world has been able to see the forest through the trees yet, because they're lauding this as though Bitcoin is some kind of terrific advance for privacy interests. And I see the exact opposite. Bitcoin is designed to protect the privacy of private actors in their financial transactions and make it very difficult for governments to monitor, control, and oversee those private financial transactions. That's the whole design center of what it's about. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, when somebody invents something like, you know, a, a machine gun, if you're dealing with a much larger and more powerful army on the other side, what they do is they steal your invention and they use their larger amount of money and manufacturing capacity to build much bigger, better, stronger ones. And then they use those bigger, better, stronger ones to kill you dead. And so it's not good that you gave up that invention. What happened here is we took the invention of the secure digital bearer instrument, which enables the invention of a much, much better form of money, digital money, which is true digital money. And, you know, these people who say, oh, it's been digital for 30 years, that ignorance just blows me away that people still say that. If anybody really doesn't understand this still, there's a huge difference between digital accounting systems, which keep track of conventional currency, which is not digital at all, versus digital currency, where you truly are communicating. When you send a, a digital Bitcoin transaction over the network, you're not sending a message to another financial system that updates an accounting record about keeping track of two different people's accounts. You're actually transmitting value, just like handing someone a $10 bill or a $1,000 bill over the internet. It is a profound difference. What they've done is they've handed their opponent, that is to say the United States government, the technology and the inventions needed to create what some people call FedCoin what I call a new digital currency called the Orwell, because that's exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be a digital currency system designed for the express purpose of doing exactly the opposite of everything that Bitcoin was ever designed to do. It will be designed to allow governments to not only monitor, oversee, and control every aspect of every penny that you spend, but it will allow them after the fact to claw back and reverse transactions without the consent of either party to the transaction. So you pay your drug dealer $1,000 to buy drugs and you get your drugs and the government later undoes that transaction, taking the money away from the drug dealer and probably taking it away from you at the same time and seizing it and having the ability to do all of these things not only in real time by monitoring everything that we do, but retroactively changing history to what the government wants. 
everything that's needed to enable that horribly Orwellian assault on our freedoms was invented by the enabling technology to make all of that possible was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto and published in the form of open source software, which any government in the world can use to basically eliminate all the hard work that's necessary in designing this Orwellian digital currency system that I think, unfortunately, will be the future. Now, I'm delighted to report that it's taken longer than I thought for big, clunky bureaucratic governments to wake up and recognize the very serious threat that cryptocurrency poses to their control, their monopoly over the monetary system. But I predict still that eventually they're going to wake up and they're going to realize, wait, we could use this technology that these libertarians invented for the sake of their Bitcoin thing. We'll outlaw Bitcoin. We'll punish anybody who uses it. And we'll use their technology to build our own machine guns, which are bigger, better, stronger, faster. And we will completely eliminate all financial privacy so that we, the government, know every penny that you've ever spent in your life. We know exactly every penny that you've ever had in your life, who you got it from, how you got it, the circumstances under which you got it, and how you later spent it on who, when, where, what, and how. We're going to know every bit about it, and if we don't like any part of it, we can go retroactively and change it, whether you like it or not. I think that's what's coming. I think that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever is really behind that pseudonym, gave away the future of digital privacy to governments by publishing Bitcoin and that software base as open source software. And it seems like even though I wrote a book about this three years ago, nobody but me thinks that there's a risk here. I don't get it. Help me. <laughs> I don't know if I can help. Um, for the listeners, say the name of the book. It's fascinating. Michelle, the title of the book is Beyond Blockchain, but it's actually the uh, the tagline or the teaser under it, which is the fall of the dollar and the rise of digital currency. And my prediction, the central prediction of the book is that the U.S. dollar will be replaced as the world's global reserve currency by a digital currency. Now, the question is, what digital currency? The Bitcoin crowd seems irrevocably convinced that it just has to be Bitcoin. I disagree. That's possible, but I think it is the probably the least likely possibility, unfortunately. The more likely possibility is that it's either a sovereign digital currency or what I'm calling a Silicon Valley digital currency, something like what Facebook tried with Libra, which seems to have been shut down temporarily, but I predict that it will be resurrected. And I think Google and Apple and everybody else, you know, the space race is on. It's, the question is, who's going to design the digital currency system of the future, which is not Bitcoin, which is like this, this, this fascinating little thing that, that a few hobbyists are engaged in. But when we run the entire global economy on a digital currency system, which I'm absolutely convinced is the future, who is in charge of designing and administering and controlling that digital currency system is a question which is so paramount to society in terms of its importance, it cannot be understated. And it's not a fait accompli that it's going to be Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency. I think that's unlikely. What's more likely is that either Silicon Valley interests and their influence basically put them in charge of it, or governments basically subcontract to those Silicon Valley interests to build sovereign digital currencies, which central banks control. One way or another, 
I don't think it's a good news story for privacy. I think it's a very, very bad news story for privacy. And it all started because of Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah, I think you're going to have to come back on the show again at some point because we've got way too much to talk about. But I, <laughs> that I, I think so that's your value added as a new host on Smarter Markets is yeah. to identify me. Well, we'll have to see if our listeners want <laughs> it's that very interview. Uh, see, this is very Bitcoiny of us. <laughs> I, I think um, there's so much in that, Eric, because and everyone, I do encourage you go and get this book. If nothing else, to have it on your cover with like flames coming out of dollar bills. So it's it's an exciting and interesting read. I think the other interesting parallel is the rise of quantum computing and how that will impact whatever the next gen of Bitcoin digital currency. And I agree with you on the sovereignty of who is going to get to that race first. What will it mean to have reporting and reconciliation? And and leaving it in the hands of the tech bros here in Silicon Valley. I live in Silicon Valley. It ain't pretty. And you know why it's not pretty? Isn't just, you know, they're not all bad people. They're not all, you know, walking computer type emotionless creatures, but it's really a place without culture. It's a really interesting place. I moved out here years, the decades ago from New York City. And as a young broke kid in New York City, you still had access to, you know, open Wednesday nights at the museums and you still could get someone's the second half of their ticket at the Met when they're subscribers. I've listened to the back end of every opera because you just ask the slightly elderly people if they're going to go back inside after <laughs> intermission. And a lot of them don't because they're subscribers. Why is that important? Because of books like 1984, because of shows like Black Mirror, because we need to test the hypothesis of what would it mean to have an absolutely anti-sovereign currency that could be taken away by a third party, that your financial story, which is your privacy, the ultimate right to privacy is the authenticated processing of your personal information. If you couldn't authenticate yourself anymore, then you're as rich as the richest guy and as poor as the poorest guy. It's the Schrodinger's cat of financial stability, right? So if you do have an anchor to people in some way, and that person could be, you know, put your put your avatar in there uh, rather than your actual identity. I think that there's a lot of room for first imagination, second build out, and third, we need all the artists and the philosophers and the ethicists to come on board as quickly as possible because with quantum computing, we exponentially will have not just faster compute, we can't keep up with the information spread as it is. You cannot keep up with the amount of information that should be coming in and, and nourishing your brain every day. Your brain is still the wetware it, it has been for thousands of years. So it's not the speed, but you can have such a rich texture in every qubit that we're going to have different hypotheticals for what is valuable, what is local, what is true, what is time-bound. And I only know of one guy, his name is Jeffrey Ritter, who's actually writing the echoing sort of policy side of this, which is a something, a notion he calls quantum law. So just as you revealed iPulse on your Macro Voices podcast, I think we're revealing Jeffrey Ritter's digital and quantum law. He's already written a book called Achieving Digital Trust. 
So obviously, we're going to have to bring Jeffrey Ritter out here to talk about this distributed ledger. What does it mean in the in the land of quantum? We will have quantum resistant encryption. So it's not a world of just open revelation, but it is much denser, richer information packets that are capable of processing. And I think that's where your digital currencies will sit. It doesn't resolve the human problems of who gets to own it, who gets to spy on it, who gets to revoke it. All that is the Wild West. Well, you definitely ought to work on doing an interview on quantum computing that's not the usual one, which is qubits and and, and the technology of how it works. But what are the consequences to society and the world that we live in to a major step function increase in the power of computers? Don't tell me yet again, because I'm so sick of hearing it, how it works. I want to hear what changes it enables and what it means for the planet. It's fascinating that only women seem to care about this, because you and Dr. Pippa Malmgren are the only people that I've met that talk about quantum computing in the context of what it will mean in terms of reshaping the future of society, as opposed to you know, multiple states in, in a binary digit, which is the, what the hardware guys want to talk about. Well, you bring it home with that statement, though, Eric, of like, should there be privacy? Is there privacy? Is it a fool's task? It's, it is that. It is. This is why Silicon Valley is all about will it work? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so thinking about should is really important in these spaces. Well, on that note, I want to go back to the digital currency revolution that you and I both agree has to happen, because I think we're in sync that we're not sure who's going to be in charge, but one way or another, secure digital bearer instruments, the idea of digital cash that really is cash so that I cannot send you a wire transfer, which is a request for some accounting system to do some settlement and clearing thing in the background that might or might not happen, but I actually send you a hundred bucks over the wire and you got it. And the instant you got it, it's done and there's nothing to settle and there's nothing to clear. There's this whole idea, as you know, Michelle, called DeFi, decentralized finance, which is the vision of the entire financial system. So the way that we trade stocks and bonds and commodity futures and everything else is accomplished on a distributed ledger instantaneously, which means that entire aspects of the regulatory environment that oversee the process of settlement and clearing in financial system become completely irrelevant. Those concepts don't exist anymore because nothing gets settled or cleared. It's instantaneously settled and cleared when the transaction happens. It's this whole new vision, but okay, wait a minute. We already know that there's going to be this tension between privacy interests and governments in terms of the currency, the monetary system. What about how this DeFi thing goes down? Do we need to worry at some point about governments saying, no, we're, we're not going to allow companies like ABEX to tokenize commodity futures because that doesn't jibe with our regulatory model? Uh, I don't think so. I think that they're going to see that it's the future, and if they don't do it, some other country will, and they will lose their competitive edge to another country. So I don't think that's the way it goes. But does this mean that the SEC tries to decide what the design of these DeFi systems should be? Or do they just react and try to figure out how to regulate it after free markets discover what the new mechanism should be? And does the question of who's in charge of the digital monetary system 
get resolved in parallel to this? So we design these DeFi systems now and then figure out later who's in charge of the currency system that those settlements are actually denominated in? This is this this very fascinating parallelism of technology development question that I don't think anybody knows the answer to. But since you're the interview guest, I get to play interview host and not have anything of substance to say. Instead, say, Michelle, tell us all the answers. How's this going to go down? <laughs> I, I, well, I, and I, I profess to not be a cryptocurrency expert. I'm a, a, an observer and a fascinated kind of armchair observer. But cryptocurrency is a tiny piece of this puzzle. Exactly. I mean, the whole, the whole notion of, well, Let's let's take a few steps back for a moment. 30, 40 years ago, maybe less, maybe about 30 years ago, I worked as an intern at a bank and we were installing automatic teller machines. And so we were explaining the acronym of ATM. And the world was on fire because how dare we? How dare we spit currency out in a gas station? Outrageous. Just outrageous. And yet at the same time, people were walking around with these little plastic pieces of, you know, playing card things with numbers on them. And you could hand that to someone and they would give you a beer or a shirt. <laughs> and then we started typing that same number into a computer and sometimes putting it on file. So we don't even know what that number is, even though it's related to us. So the risks that we've already taken on the journey to get to a distributed ledger and instant, seemingly instant reconciliation of value transactions, we are mentally prepared to do this. I can sit next to my college daughter and send her a Zelle so that she can, you know, in the lunchroom 10 states away, pay for her lunch because she ran out of cash. I think so that's the sort of people mental model, right? Is like there's a scare, there's a prepare, and there's an ownership. I wish that we could have this nice, neat, can it work, how it will work, and debate about who's gonna own it and how the rules are gonna go. But I think you and I are are both old enough and cynical enough to realize it's gonna be sort of a Roman bacchanalia while we figure this one out. It's going to be first the tech people are going to figure out how it's done without thinking about what it implies because, again, they're worried about how it works and that's a hard problem. Our regulators that will figure out how to do this with fairness, and I say our regulators as a globe, not just people stateside or in D.C., um, these people are having trouble taxing cabbages that are sold online right now. So the people who will be actually able to grok what it means to have a sovereign distributed ledger system that creates and distributes and transfers instant value, those people are being born right now. So we've got a long road ahead of us. That's sort of my uninformed, unwashed, people-centric version of this thing. So I would say invest early and often. I, my first interaction with Bitcoin was there was like a, a thing here in Silicon Valley where you could buy a cup of coffee for six Bitcoin. And it seemed so cool because it was like, hey, free cup of coffee. And had I hung on to that <laughs> six Bitcoin, I could probably buy that coffee shop today. But at the time, the value to me 
was wow, a three hundred thousand dollar cup of coffee. I did. I had a three hundred thousand dollar <laughs> cup of coffee, and I probably didn't even put cream in it. And at the time, it was more valuable than this sort of silly parlor game called Bitcoin. So, you know, don't go to me for your Bitcoin trading advice. Obviously, Michelle, I want to invoke the analogy of social media to tell you why. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, it's maybe perhaps my competitive nature. But I think I'm more cynical than you are on this one because look at what happened with social media. <laughs> I think you're right. I'll give you social media <laughs> appeared to be a really cool thing. Stay in touch with your friends. It's free. It's on the internet. There's pictures. It's entertaining. It's fun. It's cool. What wasn't so obvious was that. Behind the scenes, clever people were figuring out how to kind of rip you off for your personal data and how to, without your knowing it, use that personal data, sell it to people that would exploit aspects of your behavior and your personality in order to sell you things. Uh, all this stuff was going on behind the scenes. I have undying confidence in Wall Street, in the finance industry, to outdo Silicon Valley in terms of sleaziness. When we get to designing these DeFi systems that are going to provide, without question, a much better way of selling stocks and bonds and, and you know every other imaginable kind of financial instrument, I guarantee you that very smart, very sleazy, underhanded, cunning Wall Street guys will be very deeply engaged behind the scenes, trying to figure out every plausible way to exploit, undermine, take advantage, and use data and information that is gathered during that process against the people that the system is supposedly designed to benefit in ways that they don't understand in order to allow the insiders to enrich themselves at the expense of investors, which is something Wall Street has been very, very good at for decades, if not centuries. It's going to be an ultimate sleaze fest of abuse. And it's going to happen where it is so technologically advanced that there's no possible way any regulator on the planet could afford to hire the talent needed to regulate it in a meaningful way. You're the privacy expert, Michelle. Tell me why my cynicism is misplaced. But I think this is a data privacy disaster waiting to happen. Don't get me wrong. DeFi is going to be so much better than what we have today that it's worth it. It's going to be worth going through this, but it's not going to be painless. We are going to have our data and our trust betrayed, manipulated, and abused in ways beyond our comprehension because this stuff is complicated and technologically complex. And people who are smarter than us will figure out how to use technology to screw us over in ways we don't understand. I think that's coming and I think it's unavoidable and I don't know what to do about it. I, I wish I could allay your cynicism and fear. I happen to agree with it. Having lived both in New York and here in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of sleaze to go around. And that's not the only place where this stuff is coming out. And, and you know, the, the Oracle of Omaha is this lovely man who, who I had the honor to, to meet. But when you're scorecard says more is winning and less is losing, you're going to find the sleaze. So yes, that is that is a, a fundamental truth. I think where I, I hope we get to, and hope is not a strategy, <laughs> and partially what I'm building at Zen Data Privacy is looking at 
the code, looking at things like quantum law, quantum computing, qubits, not as a, a density of information, but what if we looked at our society as an organic representation of our culture rather than a linear warlike winning and losing culture? It's more organic than that. It's more if I had the richness of like, so what would you like to have when I walked up and, and received food? Instead, they could actually look at like, oh, I see that you need, you know, acetylene Z and you need more of this and this and this is like, okay, give me the perfect meal that I need for perfect and optimum health. Would I even want that? Um, I don't know, but I think there's some capability there for identification of when are you allowed to be observed when are you not observed? And even if you can peep in at my financial life, should you be able to wipe me out? And if so, and I agree with you, I think initially there's going to be a whole replication of 1929 where innocents go in to invest and try to participate in this new horizon. And they're going to walk out without the bag and the, and the robber barons will, will continue being robber barons. So I think all of that will happen. I think there will be a meltdown, but I also think unless the libertarian crowd wants to embrace communism, they're going to have to be a little bit reticent on the winner take all theory. And I'll tell you why, if we all are able to transact instantaneously, but no one can trust that that won't be taken away from us. We will either move off and find our own shadow currencies or these same governments that can't keep up with the robber barons will have to provide enough basic services so that not everyone is walking around broke and uneducated and starving to death because that never leads to good things either. So this is what I say when these libertarians want to take everything away from everyone, you're actually ironically pushing people in the direction of being forced to live on the dole. So I don't think any libertarian robber baron wants that any more than they want the person they're competing against to have even one penny more than they do. So I think that there are some forcing functions here and, and it's going to be a dramatic kind of rock em sock em world for a while here. But I think um, I wish I was more optimistic that privacy and individual ethics would prevail, but it's going to take us some time. I want to ask your opinion on the latest twist in this whole digital asset revolution, which is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And for anyone listening who hasn't heard about this yet, the idea here is to use the same basic underlying technology that makes cryptocurrency possible. But these tokens are one of a kind, and they represent ownership of a digital asset. And in some ways, you would think logically that that means you must own the associated asset, but you really don't. And an example of this is Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, sold the non-fungible token for the ownership of his first ever tweet. The first time Jack Dorsey ever tweeted, if you want to own a digital token that says you own that tweet, you can buy it for, I think the last bid was $2 million last I checked. By the time our listeners hear this episode, it might have gone up. What was the tweet? I don't even know. It, it, who cares? <laughs> but the point is, it's not like you become Jack Dorsey or you get the money that he made off of Twitter or, or that you have some right to something. It's more like a collectible baseball card. You're the one and only person. And a better example, perhaps, of this is 
there was a, an art auction where for $65 million, they sold the non-fungible token for the ownership of a piece of digital art. Now, digital art means anybody on the internet can see the art. They can look at it. They, they can blow it up on a projector and display it on a wall and, and all those things. The only thing that you can do for $65 million that they can't do is be in possession of a digital token that says that's your art. Even though everybody else has the same access to enjoy it, look at it, show it, display it, etc. If you would like to go to bed at night knowing that you're the one who has the one and only token that says you are the owner of that digital art that everyone else can look at, for just $65 million, you can have that privilege, including the commission that was paid to Christie's Auction House for selling that non-fungible token for $65 million. How many schools could you build as a philanthropist, Michelle, if you were in your future career as a philanthropist? Uh, how, how many orphans could you feed for $65 million instead of buying a non-fungible token that says that you own a piece of digital art that everyone else can see just as easily as you can? I'm admittedly cynical, but I think this is the silliest thing that I ever heard. I mean, it's mind-blowing to me. I just found out about these things the other night, and I was like, non-fungible tokens. So the digital art that you own a quote-unquote right to is sort of like the Mona Lisa in that it's one of a kind, but the very next moment in time, technically, you could buy another token to that exact same image, it just wouldn't be the first one, but it would be the next infinite moment after. You could print it off. You can look at it. Every electron is the same. It's not like buying a poster versus looking at the oil. So, I mean, first you have to get your head around like, is this infinite jest or is this brilliance? I don't really know, but I find it fascinating. And I think it's interesting that it is, you know, I come at this from a background. I used to be a patent litigator. Owning ephemeral bits of knowledge and ideas for limited periods of time, it's quite an ancient concept. But now our time scale is this nano moment. And so that's what we own. I think that part is fascinating to me. But then as we were talking earlier, what does it mean to own our original Picasso that hangs in public versus the underworld of art exchange where you have these sovereign enclaves, often in airports or other places of transport that are not designated as um, it's always in transit. So they're not a place where you can actually tax this capability. So you can, and many, many people do, who are wealthy enough to have a $65 million piece of Ethereum-based art, you can sit in a room by yourself and look at your, your piece of worth. And I guess what you're buying is some sort of psychological satisfaction. I think it's fascinating. I think that we always want the rare thing. And I think it's mind-blowing to think that you're owning a piece of infinity is really what you're buying. But my, my takeaway from all that is very pragmatic as a practitioner of privacy and as a mom 
quite honestly, is like, I kind of want to virtually walk through the wires and find the gentleman who paid 65 million for that and non-metaphorically just slap him upside the head and say, what do you think? And (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good place to, to, to end this particular interview, Michelle, because I think that's a a (laughs) profound and um, timely insight on your part. Before we close, though, uh, our tradition here is to tease our listeners with what's coming next on Smarter Markets. And what's next is going to be you in the hosting seat interviewing the president of IBM, Jim Whitehurst, a guy who is credited as really the the absolute king of corporate culture transformation. Because when I started in the software industry <clears throat> in the very late 1970s, IBM was known as the ultimate proprietary entity. They literally, the, the cables that they used to connect one you know, disk drive to the main computer system on the mainframe, they patented special designs just to prevent anybody else from being able to build a compatible thing that would talk to their system. That's how focused they were on not being open. And Jim Whitehurst is the guy who transformed that organization into a leader in the space of open source software. That is uh, just a a fascinating thing. What are you going to talk to him about? What can people expect in that interview? I was so overwhelmed at being able to, to chat with Jim, first of all, but I think what you will take away first and, and beyond all else is just the amount of emotional intelligence and humility. So Jim is this guy who's got a ton. I won't do any spoilers. So much really hardcore organizational leadership, culturally diverse experiences. And I even teased him a little bit about the white collared shirt, blue suit, briefcase, and binder culture of IBM coming in at a a place that was like, hey, I wonder if people are wearing pants today at Red Hat. So we'll talk a little bit about culture clash, about his own expectations coming in in the middle of a pandemic to revolutionize an organization as august as the international business machines. And that's coming up next week on Smarter Markets with Michelle in the hosting seat. Michelle, I'm so excited to have you joining me on the hosting team here, and I'm really looking forward to working with you going forward. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure so far, and I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to leave it there for this week's episode, folks. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. And I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next time for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. 
Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.